Today is Wednesday, July 7th, 2010, at Jibinsburg Bible School. Our brother Matt Norton will be speaking to us on the subject of the life of Lot. Today's class is entitled, Captivity. How's it going, guys? Is, it, is this fresh? Yes, it is. Okay. We'll have to check it, huh? Such a long walk, it should take a packed lunch between here and there. I'm going to be made, not made it. Hey? A few bickies will do. Oh, you don't know what biscuits are, do you? Cookies, I meant. Okay, so did you want to see that slide I was talking about the other day? What did I tell you about um, advertising? What did I tell you about advertising? Yeah. And is anybody here still under the belief that it doesn't really do anything for, to them? Uh, nah, as if it motivates me. Has anybody ever just bought something at the checkout that's just within arm's length, just there? Point of sale, man, that's, that's there for you. If it was five feet away, you wouldn't walk to get it. They know we're inherently lazy. That's how we work. And they cater for that. And as a motivation to make you walk a little further, they drive your lust state. Get you fired up. So that when you're at the shopping mall and you've got your wallet and there's money in it, you'll spend it on anything. Anything at all. And the product that's topmost in your mind, when you feel like opening your wallet to spend, that's get, that one there gets the money. That's how they work. They're devious. Just flicking through a um, magazine, as I said, there's nothing immoral about this magazine. Whoopsie! It was just a, um, it was just a, a house and garden magazine. It was nothing major. It did surprise me a little bit. There it is. Stanley has extended his family. Now, before you even. Think about it. Just think about that title, Stanley Has Extended His Family. Is that the most ridiculous title or phrase to put at the top of an advertisement? Is it eye-catching? Is it something which you go, hey, that's got, you know, that's a, um, I like it, I could sing to that. Stanley Has Extended His Family, you know. Is it, is it a catchy tune? It's visual, highly visual. Can you see anything in there yet? Yeah, look at it. Now, as I said, I got this verified by a top agency, an ad agency. So it's not just me. Look at that. The font has been deliberately and carefully set up. And you, you might think, no way. But you know, if you wrote that any other way, that would take a, that would detract from the way they've set it up there. So that you're and you're not meant to consciously be aware of it, by the way. Unconsciously that's meant to work. Your brain just it is a click click click. So with something that people in this world often think about, sex, is now linked, Stanley Rogers and this sort of cutlery stuff. I could go through the rest of it there, but I'm not going to. The whole tenor is carried all the way down. 
that's what they're thinking of. And you, do you ask yourself the question as I do, what has sex got to do with cutlery? Yeah? But that's what advertising does. That's what emotionalism is. It's irrational. It's not logical, natural, rational link or leap. It's irrational. Why would you spend your money on that? Why would you buy that for? I don't know. I just felt like it. It's feeling-based. All the time it's just feeling-based. There's no rationality in it at all, guys. So I'm only going to show you that. And please, don't anyone argue about that's just an accident. That's like, if you believe that's an accident, that means you believe in evolution is an accident because that's carefully created and planned. It didn't just happen. The reason why I'm emphasizing, I'm getting sick to death of immature, naive people coming up to me and saying, oh, that's just an accident. It's not an accident. It took a lot of planning and a lot of money to set that out. That's incredible. And the reason why they did it like that is because they know we tick like that naturally and that's unfortunate but that's the way we are and I want you to be aware of it young people because when you get you know what what uni are you going to go to what clothes do you wear it's only feeling based you think this is me this is my style it's only feeling based one day you might feel to wear something different you wear clothes that make you feel good it's all it is very hardly any practicality goes in it at all for example has anybody ever worn heels like this? Are they practical? Why do people wear them? Feeling based. That's all it is. It's irrational, guys. So I thought I'd show you that. And now as we get on to Genesis, where do we leave Abraham? Where do we leave Abraham? And Isaac. Is it Isaac? No one's making any, any movement. You know, Uncle, did Uncle Bob tell you how he, sometimes he's silly with people and he says something that doesn't even make any sense just to see if they're listening? Did Uncle Bob tell you that? Like he, he said he, he was down with his little kids once at the shopping mall when they were younger and this lady comes up and people glaze over, you know, they ask, how are you going? And you say, yeah, good, I did this and this. And they go, okay. And they walk away. They don't even want to know how you're going. They just say that out of politeness so this little this woman says oh are they beautiful lovely little children how old are they are they far apart and he says yeah they're six months apart and she goes that's nice and just kept walking <coughs> didn't even register so as I said where do we leave Abraham and Isaac that's right you fool Matt it's Lot we left Lot what are you talking about what are you talking about? Okay, so we left them. It was pretty dramatic in a way and it was a very sorry sort of state because Lot's covetous and they're striving and fighting. And Lot's now going to make choices which are going to change his life. And when we come to chapter 14, we're going to have... Did you know this is the first war in the whole Bible in chapter 14 of Genesis? The first war. There's enmity here and there's enemies which have to be opposed. And Abraham's going to oppose them. you know why Abraham's going to oppose them? Abraham's going to fight. He's going to, has you, have you guys ever seen a picture of Abraham in your Sunday school books? What does he look like? Yeah, he's got a beard. Looks old. Have you ever seen him portrayed with a sword 
and covered in blood. This is the picture of the Abraham, the father of the faithful in chapter 14. This is him. Picture this. He's going to stand up for the truth. Why is he going to fight? Well, first of all, he's the father of the faithful. And as a father, you've got to stand up to protect the kids. At your own peril, you'll do anything to protect your children. He's going to save Lot, his son in the faith. Plus, as the father, he's also the name bearer. And he's got to stand up and fight for the family name. What's the name that he bears? The name of God. Exactly, he's got the name of God. Yahweh. And there's this opposition that's come into the land now who are actually proclaiming another name and building ranks for another name which opposes God. And Abraham says, no way. I've got to fight for the truth. And he's going to stand up for the name. And also, we may have time to have a look at it because he's a Hebrew. And Hebrews always stand aside from the great city builders of Babylon. Now, how do we know that this chapter is about the city builders of Babylon? Is anybody going to answer that question for me and give me a hint? How do we know that these, are, these guys are from Babylon and they're up to their old tricks again like the Tower of Babel? Okay, straight away. These guys are from the land of Shinar. Now, I should put my overheads back up. Okay. Now, just before we do, I'll tell you this story. Why did, Abra- why did Lot and Abraham separate? Go and say it out loud. I'll make it right, I promise. Unlike yesterday, I know. Lot was greedy, exactly. He loved what? He loved the money. He loved it. He loved the money. And what did we say the word riches meant? Did we say that? We didn't. Oh, mate, guess what? You go and look up the Hebrew word for riches when it says Abraham was rich. Doesn't anybody know what it means? Get this. Here it is. It means to be heavy. Literally, to be heavy, to be weighed down. Now, I don't know about you, but weren't you led to believe as you grew up that money makes the load lighter? Weren't you? That's what I think. If I only just had an extra hundred bucks in my back pocket, life would be a little easier. See, that's not true. Riches makes life harder, more difficult, particularly if you're in love with them and you don't use it the right way. It's a burden to carry. Has anybody ever heard of the author Jack London? Yeah? Anybody heard of White Fang, The Call of the Wild? Okay, well, that's Jack London. He wrote those books, okay? Awesome books. He's got a, li- he's got a couple of little books. And one of these little books, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's a good story. Nonetheless, there's two guys up in the Arctic Circle who are searching for gold. They're digging for gold up there and they leave it a little late because they're so greedy to return home. Winter's coming. Their food supplies are running out. But man, there's so much gold in, the, in these there hills. And so they're bringing the gold out. And in the end, they say, that's it. We've got to make a break and go. And it's too late. And the stronger of the two packs his backpack, thirty over 30 pounds of gold in it. 
and the weaker one packs his over 30 pounds of gold and they start to make their way back to civilization. and the the, uh, the stronger one just leaves him high and dry and marches way out of sight ahead. And so the story follows the weaker one. And every single morning when he gets up out of bed and he takes enough food to nourish him for the day, to give him strength for the journey, he carefully picks up his 30 pounds of gold and packs it back into his um, backpack, puts the load back on, the heavy load, and walks again. And as the story goes and the food resources diminish... He suddenly he starts to work out he can't carry it all the way. So he's, each morning he takes out a little bit of gold and packs the remainder back in the backpack and continues. Till in the end, each day, methodically, as we march through every single day, it gets to the point where he chucks off his backpack completely. All his food supplies are exhausted. He doesn't even care about the gold anymore. And he's crawling on his hands and knees to the coastline where he just manages to get over the last hill and he sees a ship in the harbour who ultimately, because they come ashore, inadvertently find him. And he's saved with no money. But on the way there, he crawls past the half-devoured body of his mate with the full backpack of gold on still, who doesn't make it. And that is heavy, man, that story. That is heavy. Riches. I mean, one thing's for sure, at least the guy who's left behind, at least he's still rich. He's still got the money. Wouldn't you be excited still? At least you'd die happy with a heap of money. He who dies with the most toys wins. Everyone's seen that shirt, haven't they? Have there anybody seen the rebuttal shirt? He who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> There it is. And this is a lot. Searching for money, being weighed down, chained by the decisions of life. He makes decisions. Did you know, did you know that the decisions of life, guys, can actually bind you, chain you? You won't be able to get out of them. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. People, um, well, you, for instance, I'm going to choose to go to this uni, that school. It's away from home. There's no Christadelphia, but it's only for three years. I can handle it's co-ed. I'm gonna I'm gonna be living on campus, man. These are all choices you make. You don't intend to leave the truth, but when you're there, you're so isolated from the brothers and sisters, and life gets boring. And after all, you've got to make your way in uni life, and people expect you to come to the parties and expect you not to do the study. And anyway, that guy's cute over there, and he's really nice. He looks after me really well, and we're study partners. And decision after decision incrementally chain you hand and foot to the decisions you make in life and in the end you take a job because of the marks you get in another area because you're offered a great you cannot give this job up and the life choices you have chain you guys and you might laugh at that there's a brother that i know very well who wanted to retrain and the retraining institute was three hours from home which is not that far but he had to drive there four days a week Two hours from home it was, so it's not a great deal. But you go two hours, you spend six hours listening to lectures and so forth, and you've got to come back two hours. It's going to get pretty hard on your body, isn't it? Driving home, you know, as you're snoring. So he, he said, no, we're not moving. I'll be able to do it. Really? Yeah, no problem at all. 
This is what, it only goes for two years and I'll just make sure that I get to bed early at night. So straight away, this choice, this choice, well, will you be able to do a series of studies for the hall? Well, I can't, man, because I'm doing this, seri- I'm doing this um, retraining. I won't have time. So straight away, that choice has put God second, immediately. But we're not moving down there, no way. My kids need Sunday school. So three months, not even three months went by and it was too much for him. So he said, well, what I'll do is I'll stay one night a week down there. I'll drive down one day, come home, drive the next day, stay the night, next day, drive home, drive down, next day, drive home. You reckon you'll be able to handle that? Yeah, no worries, just that one night's all I need at the uh, destination to sleep in. How long do you reckon that lasts for? That hardly lasted for two months. Then they said, well, it's only for two years, we're going to shift. But you said you never... Look, things change, you know. It's only for a couple of years. We're going to shift. But what about your kids needing Sunday... Look, I know there's no Sunday school there, but this is what we've decided. This is the choice we're making. Well, okay, if you know what's best for your family, well, we do. I mean, I still want the truth. They get down there. They're there for two years, and it's only for the two years. It's gone from never, we'll never leave till now the girls come back occasionally on weekends to Sunday school and to the meeting and they feel like no one likes them and they don't fit in and they haven't got any friends and it's really hard now so because of their detachment emotionally and mentally they're also been detached and at the end of two years so when are you guys coming home oh we're not what we're not coming home. We're staying here. I got a job. Are you serious? But you said, yeah, I know what I said, but things change. So it went from never, ever moving to staying there and never coming back. Now, can you believe that, guys? And you think, Uncle Matt, will you get on with the point? I want you to understand that the choices of your life can actually chain you. You become, sin is captivating for us. And if it captures you, you'll become its captive. You know, do you know why sin's fun? It's got to be fun. It's got to be enjoyable. Otherwise, you wouldn't be, you know, tempted by it, would you? And that's why you have to make wise choices in life, guys, because Lot's now made a choice and down he is in Sodom and he's living away from Abraham, away from Sarah, the faithful couple, away from all the tents and the life of the pilgrim. And what we find... Oh, in this chapter, is he's packed up his tent. In chapter 13, he had pitched his tent in amongst the cities of the plain, looking out the tent door like a gun barrel, tunnel vision down towards Sodom, but he never intended, I'll never live in Sodom. But he moves, and in chapter 14 it says he's dwelling in Sodom. It means to sit. He's got his place in Sodom, he's packed his tent up, it's in the garage, and believe me, whenever the, whenever the kids say, Dad, do you want to go on a camping trip? Mum would say, no way! And Dad like, well, it's, it's a major hassle, you know, to take the tent out of the garage and to pack it up. I mean, I can't go back to that again. He likes the city life. Gone from never, going down there, to dwelling in Sodom. The choices of life, guys. The Bible is all about our life and it's relevant to us. And so this is another this is interesting as well. As we said, this is the first war of the Bible. And it's to do with Babylon. That's the enemy. 
Now, what is the call throughout the whole scripture in relation to Babylon and the truth, the believers of the truth? You guys know? Absolutely, it's the seed of the serpent. So in regards to the brothers and sisters, what does God always say? Come out of her, my people. Be not partakers of her sin. It's at the beginning of the Bible and it's also in Revelation. It's also in Revelation. And the, the call is exactly the same. This chapter is about rebels because you'll notice there in verse 4, it says, in the 13th year they rebelled. Do you guys know that number 13 is the number of rebellion? Did you know that? Just nod, it makes me feel better. It's the number of rebellion. Who was the 13th from Adam? Does anybody know? Nimrod was number 13 from Adam. And what did Nimrod build? He built this great city of Babylon, Babel. And they built it, do you know why? They said, let's make for ourselves a, a name. Now, Abraham had taken on a name. Do you think the name that, Ab- that uh, Babel and Nimrod were going to build was the same name that Abraham had taken on? See, it wasn't, guys. The Babel name was the name, basically, of King Sin. We'll do whatever we want. For as truly as we live, all the earth shall be filled with our glory, our honour. It's the name of man. We're going to do things our way. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, where I can go, who I can live with. That's their name. Abraham had taken on the name of a heavenly father, the name of the character of God. And he had to oppose this Babel building project once more. In fact, in fact, and I love this, he's called in the record... Abraham the... Does anybody know what Abraham's called in Genesis 14? The Hebrew. Do you guys know that? Abraham the Hebrew. Look at this. There's two reasons. One is because he crossed over the river Euphrates, as the word Hebrew means, away from Ur and away from Babylon and away from that oppositional city over to the land of promise. I also think there's another reason, which, believe me, is more contextual. And that is, expositors say that the word Hebrew is linked to this word Eber. I'll just show you where it is. Have a look in Genesis chapter 10, I think. Genesis chapter 10 and verse 21. The sons of Shem... Abraham's blessed son. Oh, and by the way, what does Shem's name mean? What does Shem's name mean? The name, exactly, thank you. Shem's name means the name. So Shem becomes a type of all the bearers of the name who are blessed. That's you and I. Shem's our father. We also bear the name of God. That was him. And he has these sons in verse 21. He's the father of all the children of Eber. And Eber, they say, is where we get this word Hebrew from. Well, what did the sons of Eber do? Do you know why they're famous? 
Because it says here, apparently, Jewish tradition is, when Nimrod said, right, we're going to build for ourselves this city to memorialize our name, the sons of Eber said, we're not going to make a brick and we're not going to lay a brick and we're not going to help you guys do anything. And Nimrod said, you know how it says Nimrod's a mighty hunter? That didn't mean that he knew where all the good Walmarts were and get all the good food. When it says he's a mighty hunter, young people, it meant he persecuted, he hunted the children of God. And sons of Eber would have been on the receiving end of Nimrod's mighty wrath. But they withstood. And when Nimrod stuck a sword under their throat, they said, we're still serving God. We're going to stand up for this city, the city of the living God, a city which has not got foundations here on earth, but the builder and maker is God. And because apparently they withstood the city building, they were also permitted to retain the Hebrew language when God separated the tongues. Now, check this out. This is what's awesome. It's been a long time since the Tower of Babel till the days of Abraham. I've got a question for you guys. Okay? How come in all the intervening generations, none, none of them are called Hebrews? Why is it right down here into chapter 14 that finally Abraham's called a Hebrew? For the first time in six generations. Anyone know why? Why is he called a Hebrew? See, I think it's appropriate that now he picks up. If he's truly a descendant of Heber, who withstood the building of Babel, well, this is the first time since that occasion that the Babel builders, the land of Shinar, have come into contact with the things of God again. And therefore, Abraham the Hebrew has got to stand up for the name of God again as a true descendant and stand for God and his things and resist the building of the great city. Isn't that awesome? How appropriate is it to introduce this epithet, Abraham the Hebrew? And there's another thing which I just momentarily thought of. What was it now? Let me have a look. Ah, yeah. This is the first recorded war in the Bible. But do you know what happened 13 years before this? 13 years before this, this confederacy of Cador, Leoma, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, about four kings, they all came down and they beat the snot out of all the, um, the um, cities around the area. And they said, be good and send us lots of money every year or we'll come down and thump you again. And they all going, okay. But 13 years later, they said, mate, we're strong now. and We're really filthy rich. We're sick of serving those guys in Babylon. And they cut off supply of gold and silver. And they said, we're not going to serve you. That's why they've come back down. But I'm a historian. I like history. I want to know, hold on. You're going to record them coming down the second time in the big biff and the fight, which is what boys like to read about. How come you don't record the war 13 years before? Does anybody know why they don't record? Why the Bible hasn't got an accurate description of the war that happened 13 years before? Anyone know why? The answer is very simple. 
fit. Because when they came in 13 years before, there was no ecclesia involved, there was no brethren involved, there's no sisters involved. And as far as God was concerned, he's not interested in that. Because that's just a bunch of men in badly dressed you know, clothes running around yelling at each other. He's not interested in recording that for us. The Bible only records the history of the kingdom of God and how it's relevant to that. For instance, I picked up a, um, an Australian history book the other day and I went through from front to back cover and I scoured it, every page, every word, and I was looking for a reference to Norway. You guys know Norway? Do you think I could find one reference to the Norwegians in the Australian history book? Not one. Now, why not? Is it because Norwegian history isn't important? Well, no, Norwegian history is important. But just in terms of Australian history, it's irrelevant. And so when we get to the Bible history, that first incursion was just a rabble mob that came down. God says, oh, it's irrelevant. But now this is interesting because they take a brother Lot captive and here's Abraham. Soon as he hears, here comes a fugitive who's, who's come, um, uh, survived rather, because they've come down here, probably come down this side, taken all these cities, sweep them all away, and I don't necessarily know whether they went up this side or this side of the River Jordan because they don't fight Melchizedek, king of Salem. And the reason I believe they don't fight Melchizedek, king of Salem, is because he is the name bearer of God as well. He worships the living God. And maybe as yet, they didn't feel sufficiently strong enough to fight the Jerusalem's king. So perhaps they, they took off quietly back up the uh, eastern side of the River Jordan with that natural barrier between them. That's only my thoughts. Plus, there's something interesting I should let you know. Does anybody know who people think Melchizedek is? Yeah, people think he's Shem. We don't know that, of course, because Melchizedek stands in the record as a beautiful symbol. But another, another tradition is a lot of historians say that Nimrod was actually executed. He was taken and put to death. Shem. That's what they actually believe. The name bearer Shem executed Nimrod. Now, wouldn't that be significant if that actually occurred? I like that. So we don't know whether Melchizedek, Shem or or not. But either way, they actually make a a sweeping um, circumventing of Jerusalem. They don't want to go near Melchizedek because he's a toughie. So they're going up there, Lot's with them. They take everything. They don't just take Lot, they take the whole lot. The kitchen sink, the furniture, everything. And they're heading up that way and one escapes and says, Abraham! Like he comes to the tents of Abraham and says, you wouldn't believe it, your near kinsman, Lot's been taken captive. And Abraham rises out of his chair and it's like he steps into the um, telephone booth and puts on his Superman cape. And he's like, as soon as he hears his brother Lot has been taken captive, he says, let's go, we're going to fight. And someone in the crowd, a little kid at the front, goes, yeah, Uncle Abraham, if we go and fight, maybe we'll get, all get killed. And Abraham would have looked down and said, they're our brethren. We've got to fight for them. And he takes 318 trained servants 
trained. And he's got a whole bunch of guys with him, two called Aina, Eshkol and Memory. And these guys are Canaanites. And I've got a question for you. How come Abraham's dwelling with Aina, Eshkol and Memory when before he wouldn't set his tent up with them? How come now? Has he lost the truth? Has he gone backwards in the truth and his stand? How come he's living with Aina, Eshkol and Memory, Amoritish chieftains? Why is he living with them? What do you guys reckon? I reckon that's a good answer because it says in the record that um, they're confederate with Abraham. And the word means to cut a covenant. And whilst more Amorites live over here, these Amorites are separate. And these are the ones Abraham lives with. And the Amorites over there have been swept away, taken, gone. But these Amorites are with Abraham, disassociated from their natural kith and kin. Plus, Abraham's going to risk his life to save his brother. Is that not right? Is that a principle for you guys? Would you risk your life to save your, your brother or your sister, your best friend in the truth? Would you at any given moment, when you hear that they're in trouble, drop everything that you're doing at that moment, and lay your life down for that. That's Abraham. I love him. I just love this. He's incessant love for Lot. By the way, Lot only just days before didn't even want saving. He didn't even believe he needed saving in Sodom. He didn't even want saving at all. Leave me alone. There's nothing wrong with my life. You know, you guys, when you choose the, the life that you're going to have in the truth and you make decisions and people say, but you need some help and you slap it away. I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I'm quite okay going the way I am. Those brothers and sisters are only caring for you. And they, they put their life on the line. And even after you've told them to get lost, when you fall down and fall over and in trouble, they'll be first by your side there. This was Abraham. He loved his son Lot. Is that really the time? Well, woof. Okay, we've got five minutes, have we? Okay. Um, what was I up to? Lot, saving, Aina, Eshkol, and memory, those guys. So why, I've got a question for you, why would Aina, Eshkol, and memory throw their lot in with Abraham to go and risk everything, risk their lives? Because, I mean, there's four confederate kings. These guys are just a bunch of um, tribal people. They probably had to beat their plowshares into swords to get a, a fighting army raised up. Why would they go? And someone has said, oh, because their natural relations, the Amorites, have been taken captive. Let me tell you something. Out there in the dog-eat-dog world of the Canaanites, they support that name. They do not stand up for each other. In fact, proof is, Bera, king of Sodom, when the fight came on, Bera wasn't going to die a hero fighting for his town. He took off, ran like a scared little rabbit, and he'd be in a slime pit or in a, behind a little bush somewhere, shaking like this, until Cater Leoma runs away. He comes out later. But see, Aina, Eshkol and Memory don't have natural relations to these people. I believe they're confederate and in fellowship with Abraham, who also, like Abraham, at a moment's notice, would put their hand up and say, I'll stand up and I'll risk my life to save my brother. They are also in fellowship with Lot and his ecclesia that were in Sodom. 
And so they're going to go and put their life on the line. And this is what happens. And so Abraham's got his trained men, and I believe they were trained not just in war and in like kung fu, and they didn't just sit there every morning and go, (gasps) and do tai chi. These guys were trained in the truth. They were trained in the ways of justice and righteousness. As Abraham was told, or the angels said to one another in chapter 18, we know that Abraham will teach his children the truth. He'll take them to Sunday school. He'll do the readings with his kids. This is the sort of man Abraham was like. He'll tuck them into bed at night and he'll say their prayers with them. That's Abraham. These guys were all born in Abraham's house, trained up like a child in the way that they should go. So they were eager as well. When Abraham said, let's go and fight, the little kid at the front said, yeah, and I'm coming too. Like he didn't object to it. And they said, settle down, son. You're a little young. You can't come yet. And it's just fantastic, guys. Do you have that much affection for your brothers and sisters? Do you feel like you fit into the truth? Do you make yourself fit into the truth is what I'm really trying to ask. Or do you feel like those kids that moved away and said, we just don't have any friends and no one understands me. No one's been through what I've been through. Or do you say, hold on, we all have one father. He's called us all, warts and all, with all our problems and all our little insecurities and our idiosyncrasies and our personalities. We're all lumped in under this one big banner of bearing the name for God. Do you believe that? Would you stand up and fight for your brothers and sisters or would you look and go, they got themselves into it? and get themselves out of it. What sort of attitude do we have, guys? How do you fit in? This is Abraham. He's willing to lay his life on the line for his, um, for his brother. And the, most, the saddest thing happens now. Abraham goes and takes him back, and I'll, just, I'll finish up in a couple of minutes. Abraham goes and captures him. Can you imagine what it would be like walking back? I reckon he would have had a lot with his arm around him, embracing him, saying, son, I've always been looking for an opportunity to get you back. I love you so much. I just can't believe you left me in the first place, but you're back now. God's blessed us. You know what Lot was thinking? Because Lot goes back to Sodom. Lot turns his back on Abraham again and goes back, leaves Melchizedek and Abraham standing and goes back to Sodom. Lot was probably thinking, this is a blessing because now the land will be half price back in Sodom. You know, the stock market... It bounces back. It always bounces back. I'll be able to buy stocks for half price now. Nothing. And Lot's thinking about how much money he can make. Where's his remorse? Where's his gratefulness? They get back there and Abraham would have been beaming from ear to ear as he and Melchizedek probably acknowledged the people and the brave soldiers who fought. We did it all for you, Lot, all for your family, all for your ecclesia. And Lot's sitting there. Maybe he felt remorseful, but his wife's saying, come on, let's get out of here. Back to our house. Oh, I hate Sarah. You know, if Sarah had come up to meet them, believe me, Lot's wife and Sarah didn't get on. And it's not as if Lot had to go, oh, Abraham, I've just got to go back and get me stuff. The stuff that I left back in Sodom. They had a free furniture removal service standing right there, care of Kate or Leoma. Everything Lot owned was already there. He didn't have to go back and get a thing. 
And yet he turns his back on Abraham and he goes back down into the city of Sodom once more. And it must have broken Lot, uh, Abraham's heart to see his son do that. You guys ever had somebody like that you've helped and you think you've recovered them and then they turn around and walk straight back into it again? It's a sad, sad state. The Hebrews return to the law in the New Testament. The dog returns to its vomit. Pigs return to its wallowing in the mud. Lot returned to Sodom, guys. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. We return to the use of our mobile phones during class. I just can't believe it. This is what happened at this time. It's distressing, I know. Really distressing. I can't believe Abraham had to watch his son in the faith walk away. And you know he depressed him? Have a look at Genesis 15. I'll show you this. How do we know it really depressed him and that was his son in the faith? Because after these things in chapter 15, the word of Yahweh comes to Abraham in a vision and God says to Abraham, don't fear, I am your shield and exceeding great reward. And Abraham turns immediately to God and says, well, what are you going to give me seeing I don't have any children? Lot's left me. My own son in the faith is gone. All I've got is Eliezer, this steward of Damascus. What are you going to give me? And God says, I'll give you a son from your own loins and it won't be an adopted son. And yet still, even still through that, even once Abraham knows he doesn't even need Lot anymore, he doesn't think, well, fine, you get what you deserve, mate. You made your own bed, now you lie in it. See you, Lot, and walk away. Not a day went past when he didn't pray for him think about him and look for another opportunity in brotherly love to redeem him. He still never gave up on him. So guys, that's, I guess, pretty much where we've got to get to in our own life when we talk about our ecclesias and our brothers and sisters. So any questions? Sorry for rushing through it again.